number two, Jeff Cameron Show, 97.9 ESPN Radio. Hello. Hope you're well. You doing all right? Everybody doing well out there? Anybody else get up early? Join a little bit of the... Uh, a little bit of the uh, British Open, or they call it the Open Championship. I don't know. If you stayed up last night to watch the NBA Finals, then you likely maybe did not get up at 3 a.m. to catch the golf this morning. Uh, something to note here. I don't have a, a, a pony that I'm rooting for here to win the race. I don't really care if Milwaukee wins or if Phoenix wins. But something stands out to me about these NBA Finals uh, you know, amidst the talk and the discussion of it lacks real uh, pop and real uh, enthusiasm, something to do with the markets, something to do with the lack of superstardom, although I would point out that it's not as if Giannis hasn't won two MVPs. It's not as if you don't have superstar players on, on both sides here. You absolutely do. Um, you know, Booker is a star. He just happens to play in Phoenix. Uh, but they, they, you know, there's plenty of you know, plenty of superstars on the court, but that hasn't been. You know, Chris Paul is a star, but he's not a superstar media darling in the sense that, say, LeBron is. Uh, but who is? Who is? I mean, Chris Paul's in every damn commercial I watch uh, for for insurance. I don't know. I mean, he's a star player. He's an all star caliber player. He's he's all those things. Giannis is a two time MVP. I don't know. But it's the markets. I think it's the markets more than anything else. But one thing that stands out to me is we're tied at two. I mean, I when I want – if I'm not rooting for somebody and I don't really care about the outcome, which is very rare, I've made this point on the air for years, that when you watch a football game or you watch a baseball game or you watch an NBA game or a college basketball game, it doesn't really matter. You're a fan of sports. You're a fan of competition. You like the game. You like players. You like athleticism. You like to see competition. If you sit down and you decide, all right, well, I don't have somebody that I'm rooting for here, but I like the game, so I'm going to watch it, invariably you end up rooting for somebody. You're never neutral. Now, you may not be passionately in favor of somebody or the other, but you're always going to kind of lean one way or the other. Usually something within the game itself causes you to lean that way. It could be a commentator noting that so-and-so has overcome these odds to get to where they are at now, and now you're watching him play quarterback for this team that you otherwise didn't care about against another team you don't care about, and therefore the human interest story pulls you in favor of that team, the team on the, the, the left side that you didn't care about. Oh, good for that kid, man. He's overcome a lot. All right, I hope he gets a W today. And then you're mildly rooting for that to happen. And the longer that you watch and the closer the game is, the more connected to the result you are, the more you begin to, all right now, damn it, let's go. Oh, that's a terrible call. Those kinds of things. And I think this is no different when I tune in. I'm a big fan of the NBA. I don't spend a lot of time on it here because I understand my market. I understand who's listening to this show, and you don't want me to spend 40 minutes, 50 minutes of, uh, of the content we have together, of the time we have together, breaking down and analyzing nuances of uh, the finals matchup. That's not what you want typically, even if I'm in deference to somebody else, referencing others who have a much higher standard of analysis because they played the game or they are commentators within the game, even if I'm utilizing their insight. You'd say, that's great. Don't really care. Don't spend too much time on this. But what you do care about because you're a fan of sports 
and maybe you're just a fan of basketball, what you probably do care about is, uh, you know, seeing great players play great and the sport played at its highest level. And you want to know who's going to win the championship. We always want to see who's going to emerge as a champion. Well, in that case, if you're indifferent, what you want to see then is a compelling series. And we have a compelling series tied at two games apiece. The worst thing that could happen is if somebody, and it looked like it was very possible at the start of this series, were to sweep the other. That's not compelling. That sucks. If you're mildly interested in something and then that sport ends up producing a sweep, you're like, well, sweet Jesus, I tried to get into this, but it's lopsided. That's not the case here. Now, I say all of that to say this. I'm tuned in because I'm a sports fan. I like basketball. I do. And I'll watch. I want to see who's going to win. But we've got to do something here. We've got to do something in the NBA to which they do call fouls that are fouls and they enforce traveling. Not to the degree like it's 1957, but we've got to stop, man. How many times is Giannis who's a great player, going to 1-2, Eurostep 1-2. We've gone 1-2, Eurostep 1-2 a lot in this series. There was a play last night where he missed, and there's no – I think there was a foul called. The travel happened well before the foul. It was, I'm trying to get into the lane. Good defense is being played on me. I shuffle after that, hop step 1-2, then a foul. What are we doing? It's not a good look for the league to allow guys to take five steps when they're already so long that if they take two, they're at the rim. You can't play defense that way. Drew Holiday gets fouled by Booker in this game last night, and it's the one that's made the rounds, of course. When it happened when you were watching last night, did you just laugh aloud? He's trying to foul him. He's trying to foul him. That's a stupid move by Booker, but he's trying to foul him. His arm wraps around him. And they don't call it. You got to do better, NBA. You can't refuse to call fouls because you don't want a star player to foul out because then it's wrestling. Then it's WWE. That's not the way it works. It's incumbent upon the star player not to have put themselves in this position where they could foul out in a critical situation of a game that they have to have or that is of vital importance like the NBA Finals. That's part of managing the game, yourself, and your role within the game or on the team, right? Like you have to be responsible to your teammates by understanding situations. You remove a player from having to have that responsibility. Now, this goes back a long way. If you're, if you're 10 years older than me or 20 years younger than me, it's certainly not like you haven't sat down and recognized that star players get calls in every sport. It's true in hockey and basketball, the NFL, college basketball, Major League Baseball, borderline pitches. If it's a Hall of Famer on the mound, you're getting your ticket punched. If it's a slappy nobody and you're a Hall of Fame hitter, ball three. It happens, okay? I get it. And I think this is nuanced as well. Within the context of this conversation, there are acceptable limits. I don't want ticky-tacky nonsense being called against elite-level star players who are on the cusp of fouling out with five minutes to play in the game. Don't give me some hand check going to ring you up and send you to the bench. Don't give me that. But you do have to do a little bit better than to just willfully look the other way when a guy is trying to foul somebody going to the rim. Because I don't like the sense. The NBA has always had this problem. 
It was. It goes back a long way. It became a bigger problem when Michael Jordan became the star that he was. I mean, Mike traveled on the regular going to the basket, but he was so quick and so talented and so athletic and so springy. I think sometimes it happens so fast. NBA officials are like, well, I don't know. The guy's just such a freak. He might have been able to do that. I think they just missed it. And then they kind of wanted to miss it because Mike is not somebody you want to send to the bench. And there are athletic freaks like that that come along where you're like, eh. LeBron's one of them. But since the introduction of the Eurostep, we've seen this traveling or the ignoring of said rule traveling taken to the most extreme. It's not good. Can't add to it that we're just not going to call fouls that are obvious fouls. Now all of a sudden we've decided to throw out the rule book altogether. Traveling doesn't exist for star players. Fouls, you're up against it. You've already got five. Doesn't exist for you. Do whatever you want to do. It's a big moment late in the fourth. I'm simply not going to call it. We're all going to look the other way. Can't do that either, man. You affect the integrity of the sport. Speaking of the integrity of this sport, also while I was away, I don't really care that Italy defeated England. I don't really care in the Euro Cup. I don't care that uh, that's what happened in terms of who won and who lost. What I care about is can we stop ending these fantastic, awfully fun and engaging tournaments of vital importance to the teams around the world that play in them by bastardizing the game itself and finishing with PKs? Can we not do that anymore? This seems so simple. Nobody who loves that sport, truly loves it and watches it and played it and grew up with it and can't wait to watch it again for all of its beauty and all of its athleticism and all of its strategy. Nobody wants to see things of that magnitude end with that bastardization. And I'm just a, an American guy who grew up playing soccer. I love it. It's not a passion of mine. I'm not racing to the bar at noon or 7 a.m. throughout the course of a season to watch big-time matchups. But I, I do watch enough. I do tune in. I like to lay in bed, watch a little during the course of a, of a year and say, oh, look at that. Look what we got here on NBC Sports. We got, we got this. This is great. And I certainly watched this off and on for my little mini vacation that I was on. I was watching it uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon as I sat at a beach bar with my brother and sister-in-law, and we watched the ending of this. I was compelled. He played college soccer. My brother did. We grew up playing together. And um, I got two brothers that played college soccer and another who could have. In my household, it was a very passionate sport. We watched all the time. I remember PBS used to carry. We'd watch Manchester United, and it was a big deal to watch on PBS. That's how old I am. And it's been a thing that's been complained about in this sport for eons, and I just don't know how hard is it to say keep playing. You're tired? I don't care. It should make it that much easier. So we, we do the 90, we do the 30, and then nobody is, nobody's broken the tie. Guess we're playing another 15. Guess we're playing another 30. Well, we got to end it at some point. I mean, guys will keel over. No, they won't. No, they won't. They'll either keep up 
and sustain a level of fitness that allows them to compete at the highest level for an extra 30, or they won't, and they'll lose. That's all that's going to happen. They'll lose. We're tired. Sucks for you. Guess you're going to lose. We're not as tired. Here we go. I'm running to space. Let's go. I'm open because Slappy over here is just too tired. What? Am I missing something? Isn't it that simple? Just keep playing. I think it's all the more compelling. You could go, can you believe it? They've played a full game, an extra 30, no result. Here we go again. It's not golden goal. Or if you wanted, you could go thir- You could do the 30, and then you could say it's golden goal. You could do that. You say, all right, that's it. Somebody scores. We're calling it a day. Either way, extra 30 or golden goal. I just don't think you got to get to – I mean – we wouldn't watch the NFL. It's my complaint about college football's playoff. Not playoff, excuse me. Um, overtime. We wouldn't watch the NFL if after a full game they decided that the overtime was 35-yard field goals or 25-yard field goals. I mean, we'd watch it, but we would bitch. Extra- <laughs> I mean, we would really be devastated to tune into something like that and to watch these guys beat the hell out of each other showcase the physicality, the strategy, the skill that it takes to compete in an NFL football game, only to see it, as I just said, bastardized to the point of let's bring in the kicker and see if he can who makes the most 25-yard field goals out of five tries. Come on, man. You, you can't do that. That's why with college football, I'd I don't like it's uh, overtime. I, I, I would make a suggestion uh, of something different that resembles more of a real game. Now, and you know, it's not completely screwed up the way it is with PKs, but it's, I mean, you're already in position to score when you receive the ball in, in, in overtime in college football. I would probably just let them kick off and let's play the game. If you have to do it a different way because you're largely for safety purposes, trying to end it, and also you want to get rid of certain special teams plays that are highly dangerous, then, okay, give the ball to somebody at the 50 or their own 40, not the 25. Let's just, you know what I mean? It's Jeff Cameron Show, 97.9 ESPN Radio. Doesn't play a ton of it anymore. Uh, so I thought we should bring this to the show because I think it's a great answer. I actually think it's an inspiring answer for people. And it's something that I hear people in the sport of golf bring up. 
people who work in it or coach it or help train people, the physio teams for the professional golfers uh, these days are all part of that larger group that they refer to when they say we after tournaments, players that is. When they talk about we, my team, they're often talking about physio. They're talking about guys that work on their body before and after each round. But also, you know, there's a, an entire industry, obviously, uh, of, of, of people that serve golfers of every level. And uh, TPI uh, assessments on golfers, again, at every level. Uh, can turn out to be very important uh, because you can learn what your body's capable of. You know, when you see, and I'm talking about this now because the Open Championship is well underway and we've referenced it and it's a, a unique major, certainly, in a, in a unique venue uh, and always a lot of fun. And I got up early this morning to tune in and began to think about how certain certain guys, how their game fits to this style of golf and this course. But I was also thinking about something that I heard during this week's press conferences and how important it is and how it can relate to the amateur hacker, uh, the, the, the guy like you and me that plays on the weekends or just wants to get better and is aspiring to shoot uh, someday in the high 70s. Or, or, or let's just say you're a guy shooting in the 90s on the regular and you'd like to start shooting in the low 80s. This is all relatable. Golf is infinitely very frustrating because it's a, it's a very tough game. Uh, and it involves so many different elements of who we are. A big part of it's mental. But a big part of it is also physical. And I think we all make the mistake when we watch professional golf, where you're seeing the very best players in the world doing things that none of us can do. Okay? A, we don't have the time. It's not our chosen profession. We're not playing 8 to 12 hours of golf all day, every day, going home, getting proper rest, having our personal chef cook us just the right meal, having our massage therapist loosen us up. I mean, how many times have you gone on a guy's trip? Or ladies, I'm sorry, I should include you too. Plenty of women out there playing great golf. If you go on a trip with your friends to, to play uh, a course in the, in, in, in the region, and uh, let's say it's, uh, I don't know, let's just say you're going over to Orlando and you're going to play one of the Disney courses and you're going to play three or four of those courses, right? And you, that first day you get over there, you might play a great round of golf. You know, you, you, you're feeling good, get over there, provided that you didn't let your enthusiasm for the event to come uh, get overwhelming the night before and then take the course that next morning wishing you hadn't celebrated the fact that you were going to be there on that course in that moment uh, if you hadn't taken it overboard, right? But you get out there and you play a good round of golf. And then you'll notice the next day you don't play as well. And if it's a three- or four-day event where you're playing 18, 18, 18, 18, or God forbid you go 36 and then 18, because that happens a lot too, where you'll play a couple courses in one day, you play worse each day you're there, and it's because your body has inhibitors. Your body has things that will not allow you to repeat the golf swing uh, in the same way that you did that first day. It could be you have tight hips, tight hamstrings, weak glutes, maybe you lack flexibility at the top of your swing, maybe you have uh, the inability to turn as far as other people. Um, so, you're, you know, every one of us has to discover what that is. But if you play within those restrictions and understanding what your body can and can't do and you're not seeking to emulate somebody else's swing all the time because you enjoy their aesthetic, 
then you tend to have a chance to play, uh, a, 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 I guess, a, a round of golf in which you have rightfully um, looked at what are reasonable expectations for your abilities, okay? And that's not to say you can't get better. But I guess I would say we're all striving to have a repeatable swing. If you understand what you can and can't do within that swing physically because of the inhibitors that your body has, your physical makeup, well, then you have an opportunity to find that repeatable swing. And you're not chasing rabbits. You're not chasing things that you can't catch. So when you watch Dustin Johnson understand something, you can't do that. You can't do that. Dustin Johnson is a freak. I don't mean it as in he's a freak athletically, which he is. He's a good swimmer. He can, he's can. he got a 40-inch vertical. He can, I mean, he's a great athlete, okay? But he's also double-jointed and capable of turning in ways you likely can't. And that most people, it's not just you, most people cannot bow their wrists the way he does. They do not turn as far as he does. If you want to see something freaky, go watch beefed-up Bryson DeChambeau from, uh, from a side profile and watch him hit a driver. Now, you can hate him, you can love him, you can think he's good for the game and still hate him, you can think all those things that we all talk about as it pertains to Bryce and DeChambeau, but the number one thing that I notice after this transformation, this body transformation, this effort to get bigger and stronger and hit it further than anybody else, the number one thing that I see is a guy who has gotten that big and that dense and that wide capable of turning that far in the backswing. It makes zero sense. I would dislocate my wrist. I would break my left ankle. I don't know how he does it. I'm serious about it. Go watch it. It's insane. Now, he's got guys. He's got people. He's got physio. He's got people that spend their day ensuring that he remains that flexible despite putting on all that muscle. Tiger Woods did the same thing before breaking down. Now, he broke down because he wanted to be Rambo, quite literally. Couldn't wait to be a damn Navy SEAL. So like an ass, he went secretly and trained with those guys and hurt himself severely because, you know, he was chasing daddy's love. Total different subject. Anyhow, that said, it's crazy to think what he could do despite putting on all that size. And if you read the articles, what you find out is that he had somebody massage him after every workout. You bet he did. After every workout, he had somebody Deep tissue massage, make sure he, make you know, ensuring he stayed limber, right? Getting in under the scat, oh, all this stuff. You're like, ah, it's excruciating. My friend Bob Utley was an Olympic alternate swimmer, went to the University of Florida, and I remember this guy. He could party, and uh, and occasionally we'd have a good time. And I would think, how are you doing this? You got to get up at five a.m. and go swim your ass. And swimming is hard, really hard. Yeah, you know, when you're eighteen, nineteen, whatever, you do things. But he said the swimming wasn't the hard part or even getting up after four hours of sleep after overdoing it. It was that the afterwards was that they would take these wooden uh, posts or, or knobs, for lack of a better term. They would strap them on their hands, these massage therapists that they had at UF, like these, these guys and gals that would come in and flatten your muscles after you got done with the swim with these wooden type plank things on their hands. And you would lay down on the board and they would... Dig in and push, and you'd hear screaming. I mean, you're in agony, but you'd have to find ways to relax because it would keep you limber after your swim. And so certainly, if you had been drinking all night, that wouldn't feel good either. Your muscles would rebel. But Tiger and those kinds of players and all these players do that. I'm 
kind of just going off on a tangent here, but what I am saying is that what I have learned from Trey and so many people within the golf world, and I'm not a good golfer, I'm not trying to sit here and tell you that I am, is that if you can find out what those inhibitors are, you can find out what those limitations are, understand you don't have a personal trainer and you aren't spending all day every day trying to get better at golf. But if you can find out that, hey, through a TPI performance test, I find out I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not very flexible in the turn or my hamstrings aren't flexible, you can improve on those things. They'll give you exercises to get better so that you can create more flexibility. But there are certain limitations that your body has that maybe Matthew's body isn't like. There's certain things he can't do that I can do, and there's plenty of things I can't do that he can do. Our body types are very different. Um, I couldn't try to swing like him, and he shouldn't try to swing like me. You know, it's just it's one of those things. We're just different. Arnold Palmer was right. Swing your, you know, your own unique swing. But you got to find out what it is. So John Rahm, who's born with a physical limitation. Now, not one he remembers because this was at birth. But we always look at guys' swings and say, huh, how did they come up with that? Like, what What made him? Mean, he's a big, strong bull of a man. I mean, when you see him up close, that's a big dude. And he hits the ball a long ways. But he doesn't because he doesn't because he has some sort of elongated swing. In fact, it's the shortest swing I've seen on tour. I mean, it, it doesn't look like he takes it back anywhere at all. He was asked about it yesterday, and I thought his answer was enriching for people who do have physical limita- limitations. And I also thought it was just great candor, and you don't often get that from guys. So this is fantastic. Here's a little bit of John Rahm. So for people that don't know, I was born with a club foot on my right leg, uh, which means uh, for anybody that's sensitive about that, this, my right leg up to the ankle was straight. My foot was 90 degrees turned inside and basically upside down. So when I was born, uh, they basically relocated, pretty much broke every bone in the ankle, uh, and I was casted within 20 minutes of being born from knee down. So I think it was every week I had to go back to the hospital to get recasted. Uh, So from knee down, my leg didn't grow at the same rate. So I have very limited ankle mobility on my right leg. It's a centimeter and a half shorter as well. So what I mean by limitations is I can't take a full swing because my right ankle doesn't have the mobility or stability to take it. So I learned at a very young age that I'm going to be more efficient at creating power and be consistent from a short swing. If I take a full, take a full to parallel, yeah, I might create more speed, but I have no stability. My ankle just can't take it. Now also, and this is what I've learned from doing many TPI tests, my wrists don't have many much mobility this way, but I'm hypermobile this way. That's why I also naturally turn to bow my wrist to create power in every single sport I do. So that's why on my swing, I bow my wrist and that's how I hit it, right? So it's little things that I think a lot of people can learn, right? Let your body dictate how you can swing. Simple as that. Let your body dictate how you can swing is the right advice there. That's the number one thing I take away from that is figuring out what you can and can't do physically, what inhibitors you have. And it is easy to get and go through some semblance of the Titleist Performance Institute, the TPI. You can find TPI tests and things like that. Now, obviously, these guys have access to the actual facility and all these things, but it's, you, you can do it. And it is remarkable when you find out what you're not capable of and that you got to stop trying. You, it is, it's pretty eye-opening. I, I've done one of these, and you're, you, it's humbling. 
It's awfully humbling. When you're around people that have the kind of flexibility that the average PGA Tour player does have, Rom doesn't have it, and he's figured out how to make it work, obviously, which is inspiring. But when you're around people who don't have those inhibitors and have far more flexibility than you, and you watch them do the same test that you're undergoing, like if you're in a group of five and you may be around a scratch golfer, immediately you're like, well, Jesus, it's just humbling. How are you doing that? That looks painful. But they're able to point that left shoulder of your right-handed player all the way down to the ball and still rotate around their core to get to where they're beyond parallel. And you'll see the center of the club face between the V of your arms straight down that line, that plane that that creates where you're able to torque and really generate club head speed because of that flexibility while still staying over the ball. Most of us cannot do that. Most of us have to move off the ball to get that far back. It's just hard to do. Or we come way inside and we can't, you know, it's remarkable to watch. Jeff Cameron Show, 97.9 ESPN Radio. two months uh two more well that's incorrect what's the countdown to first game nfl check for me director matthew on the kickoff uh for the first game of the year uh you mean the hall of fame game or preseason no the regular Regular first regular season game Give me the uh, cause I you know what we're what I'm doing here? I'm doing the thing where I I tell you it's easier to say six weeks as opposed to a month and a half. Or if it's eight weeks away, I don't know if I'd rather say fifty six days away from the start of the NFL season, or would I rather say two months? You know what I mean? So I'm trying to figure out what what I'd phrase this as. And there's a reason I'm going to turn this into something else because uh, week one games via Caesars Sportsbook uh, by William Hill, those numbers, in t- including totals, are already out. So if you're a sporting guy or gal, then you're already starting to get a little froggy, little itchy, getting excited about ready to jump here and make your move. The total day amount um, is 56 days. Okay, so I was right. First Until game the, is uh, Thursday, September 9th. That's Dallas and Tampa Bay? Yep. Yeah. So, okay. So does eight weeks, two months, or 56 days sound best to you? Two months. Two months does? It's a fight between 56 days and two months. That's, that's, a, that's a toughie. 
Cowboys at Buccaneers, sporting guys and gals. Bucks favored by six and a half. I'm laying that six and a half to run rampant over Dallas. Take that ass kicking. Is Dak going to be back for the? I believe so. Okay. I was going to say, if he's not back, then. Oh, that's, no, no, it's a, that's just printing money there. Yeah. yeah. Total 52. I'm gonna take the uh, I'm gonna take the under. I'm gonna take the bucks minus six and a half. That's my pizza money sprinkle early in this thing here. All of them are out. It doesn't matter if you're ready to jump or not. Look at this. Anything stand out besides that? Steelers Bills, great game right off the bat. Bills six and a half. Jets Panthers won't watch it. Panthers minus four. Jags Texans probably not gonna watch it. Jags only favored by two and a half. Give me the Jags minus the two and a half. Cardinals at Titans. Titans by three. Chargers at Washington. This is glorious. We're talking about games and odds. Chargers favored on the road at Washington. Nay, nay. I love that Chargers team. Give me Washington to make a statement early. Remember all that Washington had to overcome last year with the lack of quarterback play. Had a great defense. They got a quarterback now. They're not going to put themselves behind the eight ball left and right because they've got incompetence at the position. They've got competence at the position. And depending on the day, slightly more than competence at the position. Never know with him. Fitzy will play well for them. That's a good fit. Didn't you think it was a good fit? I like that fit. I like the direction Washington's going in, to be honest with you. That's true in the front office as well as uh, A-hole begins to relinquish a lot of power. Eagles at Falcons, Seahawks at Colts, Vikings at Bengals, Niners and Lions. Ugh. Just for the record, I'm laying whatever the number is on the Falcons. Falcons are favored by four over your Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> That's not enough. I don't know. You feel overwhelmingly good about the Falcons? No. No, but I'm saying the Falcons are giving four to the Eagles. You're taking the Eagles? No. No, you're taking the Falcons. No, I'm taking the Falcons. You feel that bad about the Eagles? Yes, oh, sir. my goodness. Yes, sir. Long year. Do you trust Jalen Hurts? Not really, but maybe to run around in the first game a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that Hurts is your biggest problem. you got a lot of other problems. Your oh, secondary no. is awfully shaky. I could play better safety. You don't have a lot of good players right now. This is a... <laughs> So maybe you're not eagerly anticipating the league. Or if you are, if you are, it's for gambling purposes because you love to gamble, and I do too. And, I mean, we're grown-ass men, right? I mean, this is, we're going to watch this. We're going to find the angle. We're going to get the scoops. We're going to make the plays. Niners, I mentioned. Browns at Chiefs is a fun game. Broncos, Giants. I don't know. Not in love with that. i tell you what I do like in that first week. Packers, Saints. Saints favorite. Jameis Winston probably going to be your starter in New Orleans. Can you imagine? I'll have to reach out to Jameis. I'll have to reach out to Jameis Winston, who's always been good about coming on this show and has always been good to us and, um, and whose family I've gotten to know over the years. I, I, I mean this objectively, just talking about it right now as an NFL fan. That's one of the cool stories. One of the interesting stories. How about that? It's one of the most interesting stories in the league. The, the Saints are going through a transition. They lost a lot of key cogs to this team, right? They lost a lot of key members to this team, but there's yet there's enough talent, in particular on that offense, that there's enough talent that the expectations will not dwindle to a place 
where anything but making the playoffs and being in contention to win the division is acceptable. Now, they are not the odds-on favorite to win the division. That would be the world champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers who are overwhelming favorites to win the NFC South, as it should be. But the Saints will be a wild-card contender, certainly, and it's at least that's the mindset I would think of Saints fans. So you're Jameis Winston, and in these parts, obviously, we have paid very close attention to his career. We know whether it's the national media or the local and everything in between that he is a polarizing figure. We also know that at times he is a brilliant player, and at times he's a guy you, you can't win with, meaning the, the interceptions that, that have piled up. Now, I lean towards the guy that sees all the brilliant plays and ability to win games. And what I mean by that is this. When I go team by team, I try to recognize the player at the most important position that can change the game, that can go win you a game. Most games in the National Football League, this is tried and true and cliche, are not one that are lost. The team that turns the football over the most loses the football game. We see a lot of that. That's been the biggest knock on Jameis is that that's such a key statistic in the NFL. Can't turn the ball over and expect to win. You can win games while turning the ball over. You can't do it while turning it over excessively and consistently. So there's that. But there's also when we're tied in the fourth quarter and somebody's got to go put together a drive to win a football game, do you have that guy? Do you have a guy that can make plays, make throws into tight windows that cut through on a windy day? Maybe perhaps uh, the superpower that your quarterback possesses is not only arm strength or intelligence or football IQ, but rather athleticism. They have the ability to extend plays and make things happen and emerge with a play born out of nothing or a broken play. Like, maybe you have that kind of guy. I mean, we've seen that for so long. It's what makes Aaron Rodgers so special, or Patrick Mahomes these days so special, is that a play can completely break down, and their ability to prolong it by making you miss and also having the requisite arm strength to make a throw while falling off their back foot into a 10-mile-per-hour win and still fit it into a small window. That So few guys can do that. Aaron Rodgers can. Still, Patrick Mahomes can. We're seeing emerging quarterbacks like Herbert with the Chargers who can. It's the Jacksonville Jaguars' great hope that Trevor Lawrence will be that guy. We've seen Allen do it with Buffalo. We know Tom Brady can certainly still do it and did do it big time for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. So that's cool. That's all well and good. But when I go through these teams – I'm trying to find guys and identify guys where I say, do I have a quarterback that can do that? And here's the truth. Jameis Winston can do that. He's one of the players that can win you a football game. The problem is, unlike all those other guys I just named, meaning the creme de la creme of the league, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, a couple of others, right? Jameis can also lose you a game. The challenge this year with a great offensive mind and strong offensive weapons on a team that has lost a lot on defense 
is for Jameis to bring out the very best in what he offers, which is rare, exceedingly rare, the ability to win games with physical tools and QB intelligence off the charts, right? And not succumb to the gunslinger mentality that got him in trouble, thinking there's a play to be made at all times and never letting things just lie. Can he do it? Can he switch? Has he has he matured enough? Has the time on the bench behind Drew and the learning curve accelerated as it is, and he is certainly intelligent, uh, under Sean Payton? Is it is it all that he needed? A step back, perspective, great play caller, Hall of Famer in front of him, humbling year on the bench. Is that the thing that allows the transition to be complete? And we get that guy that everybody was hoping to see emerge in Tampa. We saw the playmaker in Tampa. We saw a guy make a team better and win games he shouldn't win. We also saw the gunslinger can't let a play end without trying to make an impossible throw. Does it happen? Does it transform this year for him? I hope so, uh, to an extent. <laughs> Final hour, fourth coming. Stay with Jeff Cameron, 97.9 ESPN Radio.